Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. To be a human is to have a body, and to have a body is to touch and be touched. The silky softness of a dog's fur, the grainy roughness of sand, the bracing coolness of water. There is the triumph of a high five, the comfort of a bear hug, the lurching nervous magic of a kiss. There is pain, a slap to the face, a hand ripped out of our own. Touch is safety, danger, pleasure, pain, comfort, courage, human. We are touching creatures, feeling our way through the world. To touch and be touched is to be human. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new season of Speaking with Joy. I can hardly believe that this is season three. When I began this, I was in my very first year of writing my PhD dissertation, and now, as we begin this new season, I am supposedly entering into my last After a summer of travel and getting to meet many of you at my events in the States, I am tucked back into St. Andrews in Scotland, where I'm doing my PhD in Theology and the Arts, and I have been dreaming and planning and plotting and scribbling in my commonplace book, um, dreaming of what I could share with you all in this new season. That's why I'm so excited to dive into this very first episode with you all, which deals with the theme of touch. In case you're listening for the first time, the way this podcast always runs is that I pick a theme and I look at it through the lens of something visual, something musical, and something literary. So this week, our literary example will be Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, God's Grandeur. Our visual example will be Mary Cassatt's beautiful painting, A Child's Bath. And finally, our musical example will be Ave Verum Corpus by William Byrd. And I am so excited to share these pieces with all of you. Now, before I get going, I have to say a few thank yous and also lead with a few suggestions. The first thank you is to my brother, Joel Clarkson, for the introductory music that you heard. Um, He is often my kind of go-to music expert, so you'll hear his music at the beginning of every episode, but also sometimes I'll get to have him on the show, so keep your ears peeled for that. And also do check out his music, which you can find on Spotify and on his website, joelclarkson.com. Also, I want to thank the Anselm Society, who is my sponsor. They're from my hometown in Colorado Springs, and they're working to bring art and theology together for churches. And also, I want to say perhaps the biggest thank you to my patrons on Patreon, who, through their financial support, have made it possible for me to actually do this podcast while pursuing a PhD. I couldn't have done it without you, and I'm thankful for you every single week. So thank you for joining me in on the journey. Now, before I dive into this week, too, I wanted to give a few ideas that I've never given before, but that I think might help everyone get more out of the podcast. The first is to say that I always learn more when I'm in discussion with other people. I've just started tutoring for the university, which is basically our version of kind of professoring or it's like somewhere between being a professor and being a teacher's assistant. And the thing that I've noticed is that 
if people just sit and listen to a lecture, they won't understand something. But if they have the ability to kind of verbally process it with the students next to them, they'll suddenly gain new insights. And I think the same is true for the things that we might learn in this podcast together. So I want to suggest to you to find a friend to talk to through this new season. I don't know if that means starting a group like you might do a book club, but instead it's a podcast club, or just having a friend that you chat about these things with every week. I think it would be really powerful and it would help you learn. I know that it helps me learn, so keep that in your brain. The other thing that I want to ask as a favor is that if you enjoy this podcast, go and leave a review on iTunes because that helps connect other people with the podcast. So those are all of my administrative tasks, my thank you, and also my ideas for the new season. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's first episode of the new season by exploring the theme of touch. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods. Mm-hmm. 
with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. The poem you just heard is our first work of art for the week, our literary piece of art, and it is one of my very favorites. It is called God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins, and it just seems so perfect to share this week. Now, something that you'll notice about all of these examples is that in some ways they seem very, very different, but at the heart of each one of these examples is the idea of touch, our tactile engagement with the world. And this poem in particular, I think, deals with our our touching relationship with the natural world, with creation, with trees and beauty and oceans, with everything that we would call in our modern world nature. Also, I should say a big thank you to Joel, who is an audiobook reader and recorded this beautiful reading of the poem uh, along with his own composition, uh, so that's his own music. And I knew that he'd done this uh, for a project and then put it on his Patreon, and I thought this would be so fun to share in the podcast. So a huge thank you to him for letting me use it. And you should go, if you are if you enjoyed his music or his reading, you should go check out his music on iTunes and Spotify, uh, and also his Patreon, where he puts up beautiful videos with these readings and compositions of his own. So that's my random little plug for my brother, who is an excellent and talented person. Now let's dive into looking at this poem as something which opens up a beautiful conversation for us about touch and what it is to be human. So as a little preface to this poem, I should tell you a bit about Gerard Manley Hopkins. Gerard Manley Hopkins was a Jesuit poet and priest uh, who lived from 1844 to 1899. I've talked about him on the podcast before in my episode on suffering through art And he's one of my very favorite poets. And a theme that runs through his poetry is kind of an awe and an appreciation of the beauty of creation. He kind of seems to run in two modes, which I identify with very deeply, which is this awe at the grandeur and loveliness of creation uh, and the sense of God's presence in it and how it communicates something about Christ to us. And then the mode of what are called his terrible sonnets, which is what I talked about in the other podcast. Uh, which was that he struggled with depression and with these kind of bouts of deep sadness all throughout his life, and it was a real challenge to him. But in some ways, his poems about glory can almost be seen as kind of the answer to his moments of darkness, because there was this sense in which the disorientation that he experienced in his depression was somehow brought it wasn't just automatically or easily healed, but there was an order and a beauty and a meaning and glory and creation that he experienced that even when his internal state didn't make sense, there was a comfort in the loveliness of the world. But that's just a bit of a bit of information about him, and you can learn more about him uh, on the other podcasts and also in some links in the show notes that I put in my blog. But what I want to talk about today is this uh, picture that Hopkins gives us of our touching relationship with the world. So in this, we see that Hopkins kind of presents creation to us, the natural world, as God's generous gift, a place where we see and even touch his glory and where we're drawn into worship. I love that the way he describes this in the very first line is he says the world is charged with the grandeur of God. So it took me a while to actually connect this, but it makes me think of 
the experience, which I'm sure we have all had, of walking around in socks on carpet and then touching something metal. And the electric charge kind of shocks your finger. And this is kind of the picture that Hopkins gives us for what the world is like. He says that the natural, beautiful world is charged with the grandeur of God, so that when we touch it, it shocks us, that it discloses something about God to us. And this theme of touching or being able to touch or unable to touch is what runs through the poem as this kind of picture of the extent to which we are in a good, healthy relationship with nature or a broken one that's broken by sin. Now, this is a sonnet, and a sonnet is a 14-line poem. If you are a poet, a sonnet is kind of the the scales that you play musically to learn the art of poetry. So it's kind of an odd, odd sonnet, but it is a sonnet, a 14-line poem. And the first half, uh, you have this first kind of section. There's kind of three bits to it, which is not normal for a sonnet. Um, but the first bit is describing God's grandeur in the world and how beautiful it is and how it discloses something about God's glory and his nature to us. Very kind of like Romans 1 when it says, uh, Romans one twenty when it says, for what, uh, we're without excuse because God is known through creation, his eternal omnipotence and his divine attributes. So the first section is kind of that. It's talking about how we can see God's beauty and glory in creation. Then there's a little section is about how we are blinded to that, how sin makes us unable to perceive that or to touch it as we shall see. And then finally, the last bit kind of breaks away from our perception of it into the reality that God is working through creation, that he's brooding over us, that he will draw us into wholeness. So that's kind of the structure of the poem. So let's dive into it more. So I love that all of the words he uses in this first part, where he's describing God's beauty and presence in the world, are very kind of touching, feeling words. They're kind of visceral and sensual. Uh, They're not ideas about God. They're not theological terms. They are ooze, shock, flame, crush. All of these have these very kind of tactile, visceral senses to them. So that when we think of how God's presence is perceived in creation, it is perceived in this very visceral, touching way. And this is describing not just our relationship to God, but our relationship specifically to nature. And I think this is really significant because, and he uses this to talk about our disunion with God, but also through the lens of our disunion with nature, our ability to touch or not touch nature. And I think this is really significant because the first image that we are given of man in scripture is in his relationship to the world. I think it's easy for us to sometimes talk about our brokenness with other with other humans or our brokenness towards God and sin, but we often don't think about our relationship to the earth, how fundamentally we are creatures living in a world that is kind of made both for us and that we find dangerous. But the first image we're given of man is of a, as a gardener, or um, perhaps better put, as a husbandman. In Genesis, God makes man and then blesses him. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over everything that moves. There's this visceral sense to me when I read Genesis 1 of humans being at home in the world. Um, There's a similarity between what he tells the other creatures of the earth to do, to be fruitful and multiply, and what he tells humans to do, with the distinct uh, difference that humans are made in God's image. So when we are fruitful and multiply, it's multiplying God's image in the world. 
And when we hear the word subdue, I think this is where touching comes in, actually. We often think of kind of like authoritarian, but I think the word is better understood as husband, like husbandman of, of animals, somebody who cares for and stewards. My Bible commentary says about this passage, man goes forth under the divine benediction, flourishing and filling the earth with his kind, exercising dominion over the earthly creatures. Human culture, then, is not anti-God, rather is an expression of man's bearing the image of his creator and sharing as God's servant in God's kingly rule. As God's representative in the creaturely realm, he is a steward of God's creatures. He is not to exploit, waste, or despoil them, but to care for them and to use them for the service of God and man. So I think that part of what Gerard Manley Hawkins is trying to capture in this first part is that kind of Edenic, um, a, a recalling to Eden of how we are made to relate to the world. We're made to be in communion with nature, to be at home in the world. But this does not always describe our relationship to nature. Where there is meant to be communion, there is disunion. Where there is meant to be the gentle touch that nurtures and cultivates, that brings life from the earth, that cares for animals, there is burning and breaking and plunder. And that is where we get into the second bit of the poem. Um, and this is where he talks about he kind of uses two metaphors to describe our broken relationship with nature. And one of them is kind of dirtiness, right? So it's, I love the line when it says, all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. So there's a sense of the glory being covered up, uh, which for Hopkins was very visceral because he was writing during the Industrial Revolution which was when factories and this kind of industrial smoke was covering England uh, that he grew up knowing as pastoral and beautiful. But the other metaphor he uses is that of touch, that we are out of touch with the world. He says, uh, nor, the way he ends this section is, nor can foot feel being shod. So that, there's this picture of having something between us and creation, that we can no longer feel and touch that charge in creation that shocks us with God's glory in it. We have put something between us and the glory. And that, I think, harkens back to, as well, to Genesis 1, that they, that they know that they are naked and that part of the fall is that they begin to wear clothes. And I think that's the picture of we can no longer be in this touching relationship, this gentle relationship with nature, because we have sin. We, our feet are shod. There is something between us and the glory of the earth. We are alienated from nature. It cannot touch us and we do not care. And because we cannot touch nature, we can't perceive God's presence in us, in it anymore. And this blindness leads us to abuse creation when we are meant to husband it. As a result, as he says, the earth is bleared and smeared and seared, all of those words, the internal rhyming. Touch that was soft like oil, when he says it gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crush, and majestic like electricity when we can shock ourselves, becomes dirty and damaging. We obscure the loveliness of nature. And I think as I read this poem, how vividly we can still see this today in our smoggy sidelines and our oily oceans. 
So for Hopkins, nature discloses something about God, about his glory. It's fundamental to our humanness to be creatures who are a part of the world. And that relationship with nature is not just seeing, it's not just visual. All the words he describes it are tactile and touch-oriented. So they are touching the earth. It's the charge, it's the oozing, it's the warmth that we feel from the flame. And the way that we can perceive our brokenness from the earth is because we can no longer feel it. Our feet are shod and it covers up the glory. It makes me think of a song by Andrew Peterson um, that I have often, I have often felt very keenly myself, where he says, why don't the mountains make me cry no more? They don't sing the way they did before. And there's this sense in which we can become dull to the touch of creation, where we no longer feel the glory of God in it. And I think that's what he's trying to get at. There's this sense of blindness, but also of having kind of encapsulated ourselves, guarded ourselves from the shock of nature that is charged with God's grandeur. But luckily, this is not where he leaves us. He kind of then breaks into this new and different part of the poem. The first parts of the poem have kind of been about our perception of nature. But this next part of the poem moves to God's action in nature. He says, for all this, nature is never spent. And I love this. I've been reading Brothers Karamazov, and there's this theme throughout it uh, of animals, where he talks, numerous characters talk about how men are all terrible, and they're running around sinning and hurting each other. But there's this innocence and this beauty in nature, oftentimes trampled and treated poorly by humans, but that testifies to something beyond the evil of men. It's what some might call the common grace, that there is goodness, that nature is never totally spent that it's never totally given up beyond what it has, despite all of our own wickedness and sin. So he says, for nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. I love that, that there's, there's something at the heart of nature. I just, I think it's so beautiful. And then he says, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods, with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. And I love this um, little section because it harkens again back to Genesis 1. And the reason that nature is never spent is not because we are the good husbandmen that we are meant to be. It is because God is the one who loves this creation and who loves us. This passage is referring to, I think it's the second verse of Genesis 1, where it says the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep and they were formless and void. And um, so it's not, when you look at this next to most of our English translations, uh, it's not totally clear um, that these would be similar. You know, the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods, the spirit of God uh, hovered over the waters. But it's because of this word hover. And this is one of my favorite fun facts about the Bible. Uh, this one little word, which I think is so beautiful. This word is usually tra uh, translated as hovering or moving, but the word is less just of a word and more of a picture. So I'm not going to attempt to to say the actual word in Hebrew because I will butcher it, um, but it is a verb and it is a feminine singular, and it's generally translated as to brood, which is a picture that we are given of God as a mother bird over creation, brooding over it 
kind of waiting for the life of eggs to come to life. And this is the picture that we're given, is God hovering or brooding over creation, bringing a gentle, kind of relaxed spirit to life. He's bringing to life creation. And so this is what he's reckoning with when he comes back to the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods. There's this sense of the coming near of a comforting, life-giving, caretaking presence, and that our own souls may be brought to life in addition to nature, that something beyond our mere failure as husbandmen will be brought to life. Hopkins brings us back to this hope that God shows his care for the world, that God still broods over the world and broods over us. And there's hope that as we watch, as he watches the sunrise, as the morning over the brown brink eastward springs, that God may bring us back into union with nature one more time, that we can feel the shock of God's presence in it, that we may take off our shoes and feel the holy ground of the garden. And I think that's so beautiful. So this is our first work of art, and it deals with touch in this way, our touching, feeling relationship with nature, with the natural world that we are set in. Hopkins shows us how we're meant to be able to touch and be shocked by the presence of God in the world, to feel the oozing and the warmth of glory, but how in our sin we are often um, shod, our feet are shod so that we can't feel the glory in it but that maybe through God's brooding, through his Holy Spirit, we may be brought back to a place where we can see and touch God's glory in creation. And I think that is beautiful. So now that we've explored our touching relationship with the earth, let's look at our touching relationship with other humans. And to do this, we're going to look at a beautiful painting. You have to go on my show notes or Google this on your iPhone by Mary Cassatt called, very simply, The Child's Bath. Now, I love the work of Mary Cassatt. Mary Cassatt was an Impressionist who was painting in mostly kind of in the late 19th century. She was American, but she spent most of her life living in Paris. And she was kind of buddy buddies with Degas, who's the Impressionist who painted lots of um, pictures of ballerinas, if you know that. They had kind of a funny friendship because he was very famously mis uh, misanthropic and also kind of chauvinistic. He, he would say, a woman shouldn't paint like that. And yet somehow, despite this very obvious difference, because she was a very talented artist who was respected as a woman, they managed to be friends for many years. Um, but she was famous for painting kind of domestic scenes. So if you Google her, a lot of her paintings take place in homes. Many of them, almost most of them are of mothers and children or of things as simple as having tea time or uh, reading the paper. And this was what she became famous for. She was kind of a portrait artist or a setting artist in the Impressionistic style. Now, of course, Impressionism is its whole other movement, which we could talk about in another day, and I think we actually will this, this term. Look at me talking like we're in English this season. <laughs> uh, but Impressionism was a movement, again, in the late 19th century that moved away from realism, that wanted to capture kind of the mood, the shadows and lights, and the, the impressions, as it sounds, of scenes. And so you can observe that style in her paintings. But the thing that I love about her work is that she really kind of dignified 
the beauty and importance of of the ordinary, of the domestic life. And in a way that was kind of different than Degas. Sometimes people can say that Degas' paintings, if you contrast them, he also has a lot of kind of domestic pictures when he's not painting ballerinas. But there's almost a little sense of, sometimes, of voyeurism in them. Kind of, you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. But when you look at Mary's paintings, there's this sense of, of just like entering into a beautiful, normal day. And that is so very true of this painting. So this painting, I'm going to describe it to you, but you really should Google it or go on my show notes at joyclarkson.com in the blog section. It's very simply of a mother giving a bath to a little girl. So it's this mother and it's kind of looking up from above. So the perspective is, it would probably be if Mary was standing at her, at her easel and looking down on them. So it's down from above and the mother is sitting in this beautifully striped dress and she has this little girl, probably about four or five, on her lap. And she has her feet in a little washing basin. And there's something just so sweet to me about this picture. It was really silly, but when I was preparing this and I was writing this section, it almost made me want to tear up because there is, it's just this perfect embodiment of the sweetness of a mother and child relationship, of um, the trust and the loving touch. The mother is kind of firmly holding her. You feel like this child isn't going to go anywhere, which you can tell because she's very comfortably leaned up against her mother. So she's firmly holding her. She's safe. Um, but there's an affection, too, in the way that she's holding her. And she's washing her little feet very gently, but again, very competently. And there's something just so beautiful about this picture to me. It's this embodiment of the sweetness of humans that are made to touch and be touched, of the safety and comfort of being clean and taken care of how firmly, I love how firmly the mama holds the baby, how comfortable and unworried and unashamed the little girl looks. She's not only safe, she's clean and she's cared for and she's loved. And I think as we look at this picture, if you were to kind of think back in your mind, most of us, I hope everyone listening, has some memory of a child, as a child, of feeling that sense of safety, of visceral comfort, of sitting in the lap or in the arms of a caretaker, a mother, or a father, or a big sister, or brother, feeling safe and loved and taken care of and touched. And that's really the fundamental part of this is the touch that she's held firmly, but safely and lovingly. And I think this is really important and profound when it comes to the idea of touch, because for children, touch is so profoundly important. Touch, safe, loving touch, is the magic that brings the brains of little babies into life. I've been reading this book, which I'll read a passage from in a minute, on trauma. But before he talks about trauma and the ways that we can address healing it, um, he talks about how so much of a healthy psychology is based on those early years of having been touched and responded to as a baby. As mamas nurse and cuddle and swaddle, there's this kind of rhythm of love that's um, created with the baby of connection and comfort that they learn to expect that they are safe, that they will have their needs responded to. Babies learn to see the world as a safe place that gives them freedom to explore and learn and grow. So touch is key to cognitive development but even key to things like physiological development, like your digestion and your immune system. 
It's so important that when they do studies where they study children who aren't touched as much, maybe when they're in an environment like a orphanage, which of course we don't have many of anymore, but um, perhaps in other countries, children who aren't touched have a huge amount of stress hormones in their bodies uh, at a young age, even if they're not in a particularly stressful environment. They're more likely to get infections and their cognitive development is, is slowed down just because they weren't being touched. There was this um, study done, which would totally be illegal now, in a Russian orphanage in the 50s, where they had one group of babies that was uh, fed and taken care of and then also held uh, and had affection given to them, and the one group of babies that was fed but not held. And the group of babies that were only fed and changed but were not held actually began to die. They didn't have any other factors. They were being fed enough and they were drinking enough and eating and sleeping. But simply from not having touch, the babies began to die. So this element of touch is fundamental to what it is to be human. Each one of us was brought into life by being touched and loved uh, by our mothers or our caretakers. I love this passage from Psalm 22 where he says, you brought me, speaking to God, you brought me safely from my mother's womb and you led me to trust you at my mother's breast. And there's this visceral reality to the fact that our ability to trust humans in the world, but also our ability to feel safe addressing God does come from these early years of being touched in a loving, affirming, safe way. It is at the fundamental core of what it is to be a human. And when I look at this painting, that is what I see. I see the sweetness of a child who has learned dependence upon a parent, who can count on affection and security and safety on a deep, visceral, touching, feeling level. But the converse is also true. Violent touch or inappropriate touch or even a neglect of touch can have a profound effect well into your adult years. In this book on trauma, he talks about how much childhood trauma comes from a lack of touch or an inappropriate amount or way of touching. And he talks also about how healing for, for trauma, so often we think of healing psychologically as something that happens sitting on a chair in a, in a shrink's office or taking a medication just to make us feel better. But he talks about how much of what it really would look like to heal someone from trauma is about learning to help them receive touch as a good, beautiful thing. I think that part of the reason that negative touch, whatever it may be, can be so profoundly powerful in trauma is because touch is so essential to what it is to be human. It's the thing that brings our brains and our hearts and our souls to life as babies. I'm going to read you a passage um, from this book, The Body Keeps the Score, about kind of what his vision is for healing for people with trauma and how much it has to do with touch. And I want you to keep in mind how much this has to do fundamentally with touching, with our visceral, tactile experience of the world and of other people and of ourselves. Trauma victims cannot recover unless they become familiar with and befriend the sensation in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. 
In order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. In my practice, I begin the process by helping my patients to first notice and then describe the feelings in their bodies. Not emotions such as anger or anxiety or fear, but the physical sensations beneath the emotions. Pressure, heat, muscular tension, tingling, caving in, feeling hollow. I also work on identifying the sensations associated with relaxation or pleasure. I help them become aware of their breath, their gestures and movements. The mind needs to be re-educated to feel physical sensations, and the body needs to be helped to tolerate and enjoy the comforts of touch. Individuals who lack emotional awareness are able, with practice, to connect their physical sensation to psychological events, and slowly they can begin to reconnect with themselves. Reading this book has made me aware of how much we kind of disconnect our sense of selves and our psychological health and our relationship with others from the visceral touching feeling nature of what it is to be a human. We need touch, healthy, kind, gentle touch in the same way that we need something like food or water. It's funny, a lot of times in university towns you can tell this because people will talk about kind of the the hug starving. I used to have a friend who every time she'd see me, she'd give me a big bear hug because when you first go to university, you're around a whole bunch of people that you're not close enough with to have that normal comforting touch and hugs that you've learned to crave and to feel as comfort and as courage from the time you were a little baby. To be able to touch affectionately, hearteningly, courageously is at the core of what it is to be a human. It's the thing that brings us to life, that gives us comfort, that holds us when we are in grief or in terror. But because of that, our experiences of touch with others can also be profoundly broken. To heal, we have to learn to feel safe. And that can be a very difficult road for many. But I think this desire for touch also reveals another desire for us. And that is our profound desire to touch and to see God. And that leads us to our final example, which is our musical example. So we've talked about how touch is in some ways as fundamental of a need or a desire as eating or drinking. But for those of us who believe in God, who believe that we came from the heart of God and long to be at union with him, this creates kind of a, a gap. St. Augustine famously said, Our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And I think this aspect of humanity is so pervasive that it's described in pretty much every philosophy and religion you can find. There's this sense of lack, of aching, of a desire to be more or accomplish more. There's this kind of not-at-homeness that we all experience that is so ubiquitous that you will hear it described and called different names whether you are reading literature from a Buddhist or an atheist or a Catholic. And from my own perspective, I would, I would say that that desire is the desire to be at union with God. And this is, of course, the answer that all of the old theologians and all the writers of scripture would say. And I think part of what actually frustrates that desire and what has frustrated that desire for me is the seemingly kind of 
insurmountable gap between my experience as an embodied and fleshed being and God's infinite spirit. There is, I find in myself, this very almost childlike, though to say childlike is not to say not profound, desire to be able to touch God. Because I touch the things that I love most. We bridge the gap between ourselves and the other people that we love by touching, by hugging, by reaching out. But we can't do that with God. And so there's this sense of ache and of separation. Or can we do it with God? The whole idea of the incarnation is that the word, the infinite, the spiritual entity that has created the whole world, has become flesh. And as we've talked about today, to be flesh, to be human, is to touch and be touched. God, that thing that our heart aches most for, both lived in one of these touching, feeling bodies, also made himself available to all of us to touch. I love the passage in John where, it's, where after the resurrection, Jesus comes to Thomas, who's been doubting, and he says, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. He's inviting Thomas to touch him at this visceral level, at this fundamental human level. And I've always been jealous because I have always wanted to touch God. But as I've grown and as my theology has grown, I've come to see that communion that we share in church, the place where um, the, the new covenant is instituted, as Jesus says in the passage um, passages in scripture, the, the blood of the new covenant poured out for me and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ reveals this new covenant to me in a visceral, touchable thing, in wafers and in wine. It sounds silly, but for me, it was a huge step in my faith when I realized that that profound desire I had to touch God, to be able to feel him in the world of my five senses, was met in church, where I could go and I could kneel and I could pray and I could receive in my hands something physical that I could touch, that God has made himself available to me in the world of my senses. And to demonstrate this, I want to read a passage from some of Joel's writing. And I should tell you all, this comes from a book that he's, that's actually going to be published through Nav Press in the coming years, and it's going to be called Holy Alive, Encountering Jesus Through Our Five Senses. But he writes this, Perhaps most profoundly, the elements of communion itself, which we engage with on multiple sensory levels, is, the, is first received through touch. We feel the thin, brittle wafer or crumbling bread in our hands and recognize, perhaps, the frailty of human flesh which was broken for our salvation. In a radical way, this tactile encounter with the Eucharist draws us emotionally into the realization that God is not far from us, but near at hand, quite literally expressed in our hands. And it is through his broken body that we are able to receive redemption, to touch it and hold it in the living expression of bread and wine. For Christians, communion is the space in which we experience in a tactile, touching way God's redemption for the world. 
Which is why, over the years, there have been these beautiful pieces of music that have been dedicated to the Eucharist or to communion, that celebrate the body of Christ, the touchable, feelable, redeeming body that has come into our world, that has been the Word become flesh. And so to end today, I wanted to share with you this beautiful piece of music uh, that's called the Ave Verum Corpus by William Byrd. Now, as my little history facts, William Byrd was a composer, uh, an English composer, who lived from 1543 to 1623, and his music is kind of representative of the Renaissance. This is one of his most famous pieces, and Ave Verum Corpus means Hail True Body, and it's talking about the celebration of the fact that Christ has come in a body to redeem us. Uh, I'm going to read you the English translation, which says, Hail, true body, born of the Virgin Mary, having truly suffered, sacrificed on the cross for mankind, whose pierced side water and blood flowed. Be for us the foretaste of the heavenly banquet in the trial of death. O sweet Jesus, O holy Jesus, O Jesus, son of Mary, have mercy on me. Amen. This was meant to be sung during communion services and reminds the listeners that as we receive communion, we receive that promise that we will be able to see God face to face, to put our hands like Thomas did into his sides and into his wounds. Because to be a human is to have a body, and to have a body is to touch and be touched. And it is at the heart of this very visceral, tactile reality that God invites us to experience his redemption. Today, I'm going to end by playing you a recording of Ave Verum Corpus by Peter Phillips and the Talus Scholars. I'm so happy that all of you joined me today, and I hope that I'll see you here next week for another episode of Speaking with Joy. <laughs>